0: This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. When I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite movies was The Planet of the Apes. The Planet of the Apes was a great movie because it was kind of, you know, just it's a story of this, uh, these guys are out in space, Charlton Heston's probably his greatest role of all time. He, they land in space and they realize they've landed on a planet where the apes are on horseback and they're dominating. They can speak, they have culture, they've made a civilization and the humans can't even speak. It's as though everything has been reversed. I love that movie when it launched a whole franchise. So in 2000, when they were going to do a reboot of the Planet of the Apes, I was very, very excited. But unfortunately, it was a bomb. Tim Burton did not hit it out of the park. So I was a little bit suspicious when this uh, second reboot uh, took place about 10 years ago. But I went eventually and saw one, and I was very, very excited. It was, it was really, really well done. For a Planet of the Apes fan, I was, I was, I was pretty pumped. But what happens is they go back in time, they don't launch from where the original Planet of the Apes ended, where Charlton Heston is walking on the beach. And look, I'm going to give a spoiler here, but it's a 40-year-old movie. He realizes that he hadn't gone to a different planet. He was on planet Earth just later in time. Ah, Remember he's yelling on the beach because he sees the Statue of Liberty? Amazing moment in film history. But so the reboot comes back in time to kind of get you to the place where, how did we get to this? This place, and what it turns out is, they had given this this uh, this formula to the apes to make them really intelligent. And there's this this uh, this one ape named Caesar, who's played by Antti Serkis, who who was the guy that did Gollum. He's a great actor, and so he's this realistic character, and he's become really smart, and he's actually leading the apes. But part of that medicine or that formula that was given to the apes caused a problem in the humans and so you see that the apes are getting smarter and smarter and smarter but the humans and at the in the the end of the third reboot Woody Harrelson is starting to become you know dumb himself you see that what's happening but there's this simian flu that takes over the world this is going somewhere right I promise and what happens is many of the people are wiped off the face of the planet there's only a few people who remain and the story in those three reboots is what is going to happen to them are they going to be able to carry on and function well of course we know that it didn't work out for them so well because Charles heston came back and landed this his, his spaceship but there are this remnant of people there's only a few that have been saved and the question in the movie is will they sustain will they be able to flourish and have life and the ultimate answer is no they just go down this bad path But this idea of a remnant is a really popular idea in film, in art, and in the Bible. There's this uh, dystopian future, right? There's this cataclysmic event that has taken place. And there's only a few that remain. Will they be able to overcome? Will they be able to sustain and to flourish in life or not? And that is the question One of the questions that I think Paul is asking and answering in Romans chapter 11. What is this idea of a remnant? Who are the people? And we think about just for a moment, when Paul is writing this letter, remember his audience. He's writing to the church in Rome. Right? They're at the center of this commercial city, of a military city, of a pagan sex city, and they're seeking to be faithful to Jesus. So when Paul is talking to them about the remnant, this idea would probably really resonate with them because they're feeling isolated. They're feeling like they're few in number. They're feeling like the culture is against them. In many ways, this may be how you're feeling. Right, Things aren't as they used to be the world is changing the culture has gone this way or that way and here we are as the church followers of Jesus wanting to be faithful this group of folks who are seeking to live out the gospel in a world that has gone mad where the apes are in power over the humans and they're riding on horses it's amazing so here we are listening to Paul as he writes to this small community. This idea of remnant isn't original to Paul in Romans chapter 11, though, so we know that this idea goes back all the way to the Old Testament, right? He, he deals with this, and what Paul is also asking is this question right here, because he realized that the people of God throughout history have, have, uh, have not followed God well. They've, they've failed to follow him. Verse 3 says, Lord, and here's, here's Isaiah, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. He's, he's saying the people of God haven't done what God wants them to do. And yet God has still established a people who have remained, a people who will persevere. So so far in, this, uh, in, this, in, Romans, in Romans, especially in Romans 11, he's uh, treated the problem of Israel, right? So what, what is God going to do? with his chosen covenant people, with the Israelites. So he talks about in chapter 9, remember this, we talked about the sovereignty of God in choosing a people for himself, this special people and his loving mercy was the word that we really focused on. In chapter 10, he deals with Israel's failure to respond to God's righteousness. Ending with this verdict at the end of chapter 12, 10, 21, he says that Israel is a disobedient and obstinate people. So these two issues present this tension for us in the story. Will Israel's sin and stubbornness defeat the purpose of God? Or will God find a way to deal effectively with the situation and to safeguard his purpose? What's going to happen? This is the tension that Paul is writing about in Romans chapter 11. What is the remnant and how does God want to use that for his purpose? So we're going to look at three aspects of remnant. First of all, remnant. Defined. Let's get a little bit of an understanding of what is this idea of remnant. We need to spend a moment defining it. He talks about it here in Romans 11, but it also, think about when you remember your Bible stories. There was a remnant with Noah and his family. Right? The world had gone after its own gods and the pagan culture had prevailed, and yet there was this remnant of people that God preserved in Noah's ark. There's another idea of remnant that we see with Lot and his daughters who were saved from the, the burning sulfur in the city. Isaiah's son's name is Shear Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. It's all over the Bible, even in the New Testament. We hear, for many are called, but few are chosen. This idea that there is a select group of people. And so there's a, a theological problem, which uh, the remnant concept addresses, which is, again, this, this tension between God's grace and promises of God over against his holiness and his judgment of sin, right? God is a God of grace and of mercy, but he's also a God of judgment and justice. And so the idea of remnant addresses these, this tension, this tension addresses the tension between his grace and his judgment by presenting a distinction between the true and false people of God between the present and future people of God the holy pure and true people of God will survive this judgment of sin as a faithful remnant and become the nucleus of a renewed people so the purposes of God are not frustrated but are brought through the true remnant okay so We're a little theological. We're going to get practical later, I promise. But just keep, bear with me. Take a deep breath. Focus. Concentrate. I promise it'll get better. (laughs) we got to cover this little bit of ground here to try to define this idea of remnant. So this, this concept cuts in two directions, right? So on the one hand, remnant emphasizes God's judgment, right? God is just. And just as it was with Noah, he's on the verge of destroying his people because of their sin. And that is a right thing for God to do if it was his will because the people have rejected him. On the other hand, there is a remnant that survives. And this emphasizes, though, the grace of God, that his favor is shown to the people who he has kept safe in the dawning of a new age and a new community which inherits the promises of God as it springs from that remnant. So look at what Paul is doing. He's going back to the Old Testament. He's saying, Lord, this is Isaiah. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. He's recognizing what the people of God did. And then this is what Isaiah says. I alone am left. They seek my life. You hear Isaiah saying, oh, woe is me. I'm the only one who's left. But what's God's reply? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal, who's the God of the age. God's response is, you're not alone, even though it feels like you're alone. Actually, I have others who have not bowed their knee to the God of this age. He continues, Paul, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So what the definition of remnant is a group of people who've been spared from God's judgment because of grace. A couple of weeks ago, we lifted up God's mercy. What, what was mercy? And remember, not getting what we deserve. But grace is getting what we don't deserve. Because we have not walked with God, we do not deserve his relationship or his favor, but God gives it to us freely because of his grace. That is remnant Defined. Point number two, remnant intended. What is the purpose of a remnant? Why does God use this idea of remnant, this reality of remnant? What is he doing? First, he asks the question. Paul says this in verse 7 What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And this is the tricky part for Romans 11. How were their hearts hardened? What is it that God is doing? As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So the remnant intended, the the remnant uh, the purpose is to show God's people that there is a way. It's to reveal what God's character looks like in a community of people who love and serve God. The remnant is, is intended to demonstrate the love of God as the one who has established a living and active people like us who seek to follow him in a world of tension, of brokenness, of struggle, who have not given up to the idols of the world. We've not bowed our knee to Baal. This is a demonstration. The remnant is a demonstration of God's character in the world through his people. So Paul continues in verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their trespass, he's talking about Israel's trespass. Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So here's what he's saying. God's people, the Israelites, they've rejected God. And so now what has happened? God has released salvation to the Gentiles, to the pagans, to the people who were outside the covenant. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the prophets. And so now because God's people have rejected him despite having these things, He says, this now is for the Gentiles. And Paul's whole ministry was to the Gentiles. He's the one that traveled all over the Mediterranean. Think about who he's writing to in Rome. Certainly there were some Jews there, but they're to the the pagan people. The message of the gospel is for the whole world. It's not just for one people who all look alike, who all speak alike, who have the same language, the same culture, the same color, the same political party. The gospel is for the whole world, for all who would Believe. What a glorious thing. Look at this. In the next verse, he says, verse 12 Now, if their trespass, meaning Israel's trespass, means riches for the world, right? Because the Gentiles have now received the riches that God has given to us. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, the Israelites, full inclusion mean? And one of the reasons I talk about how Romans 11 is complicated is because we don't really know exactly what God is going to do. Most of the Jews have rejected God. Some have embraced him. How does God intend to bring them back into fellowship and family? We don't know the answer to that. And much ink has been spilled and probably even some blood over how God and will God and when God will do these things. And we don't ultimately know the answer, but we do know that Jesus Christ is the invitation that has been made to all the peoples of the earth. And what a glorious thing it would be if all of the Jews turned, became worshipers and followers of Jesus. Their full inclusion into the kingdom is the way that Paul says it. Only God knows his plans for that. But he does say that Paul uses the Gentiles to make the Israelites jealous. Now, there's probably some debate about this in, in our culture today, but it's the difference between envy and jealousy. Now I know that often those words are used uh, interchangeably, but I, um, I think is envy is defined as wanting something that someone else has. And I think people use the word jealous a lot when they actually mean envy. Envy is uh, wanting what someone else has. Jealousy is the fear of losing something that you do have. Envy is wanting something that someone else has. Jealousy is the fear of losing something that you do have. And Paul says that the Gentiles are being used as a remnant for the the purpose of jealousy in the Jews, that they would lose something that they had. They've been given God. They've been given the covenant. They've been given the word, the temple, all these things, God's presence. It's something that they've had. Are they afraid of losing it? It, Will this spirit of jealousy make them return to to God and say, I don't want to lose you, Lord. I don't want to lose what I have. So, remnant defined. Remnant intended. Now, remnant executed. Couldn't think of a good word to finish there on the end. I'm looking up words that end in ED to fill the sermon line. But here's the point for number three. What does the remnant mean for me and you today? How does this apply in my life? And I'm going to make an attempt to give you some practical things to to latch onto and hope that God speaks to you to give you something. What What does the remnant mean for me? Well, one aspect of the remnant is that it's a warning to the church, right? Because just like Israel, who had God and lost God, it's possible for the church to have God and to lose God, not because God is somehow missing or has gone away, but that our hearts and minds and focus become on the things of the world. Instead of embracing and loving Jesus and following him and applying his word to our lives, we just get busy with the things of this world. And we lose sight of who he is. So just like the Israelites lost God, we too can lose God. You know, we, um, we don't really inherit our faith from our parents or from anyone else. You can learn your faith from your parents, but as I said a a number of times, God doesn't have any grandchildren. Just because your mom goes to church or because your grandmother went to church or your dad doesn't mean that you know God and are a child of God. Each person needs to understand themselves as in relationship with God. God only has sons and daughters. So have you made a commitment that is your own? And certainly, it's an individual commitment that each person must make But you're not only following God as an individual. You're brought into a community. You're brought into a family. You've been grafted in, Paul says, which means you've been brought into his family. It happens for you as an individual, but also in a community. We're not just people, lone rangers, following God on our own. That's why being a part of a community, being a part of a group of other people that want to follow and love God is so vitally important for our life. Remember when Paul says in Romans 10, that each person, he says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your heart, Jesus is Lord. What does it mean to say that Jesus is Lord? That's a profound statement. First of all, it means Jesus, a person who lived in time and space, a real guy who lived Not just some fictional character, but a real person because we believe the Bible is a historical uh, event. It's a story about true things that happen. This is a true story. Jesus is a real guy. Do you believe in him? Will you confess him as Lord? What does it mean to confess him as Lord? Well, if he's the Lord, then he gets to do with you as he pleases. Right? The confession says, what's our only hope in life and death? The answer is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death, to God and to my Savior Jesus Christ. I am not my own. If I have a Lord, then my Lord determines what I do with my time, with my money, with my body, with everything. Because he's the one who's in charge, not me. That's what it says. That's what you mean when you say Jesus is Lord. If you're living your life your way, based on your convictions and your plan and your desires, you are the Lord of your life. You have not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. You're not living in that way. And Jesus, through Paul, tells us we must confess he is Lord. And the way that we're able to be in relationship with him is this gracious act of salvation that he gives to us by dying on the cross. And who better to give ourselves to, to entrust ourselves to, than the God who made us, who knows what's best for us. I mean, so much of my life, I was a Christian. I grew up going to church I went to a camp and I invited Jesus into my life. I walked uh, on Stone Mountain, Georgia with my cousin when I was six, and I invited Jesus into my heart. He was my Savior, but he was not my Lord. I was my Lord because I wanted to run my life the way I wanted to run it. And then I began to realize it's not working out so well. I have some outward signs of success, but I don't have inward peace, and I don't really know what I'm doing. The Lord, out of his grace, said to me, Matt, I still love you even though you've rejected me. Come into relationship with me. Live under my authority. Follow me and trust me because I have something wonderful for you. Man, I'm so thankful that he revealed that to me. Has he revealed that to you? I'm hoping that these words, this challenge from his word encourages you to confess Jesus as Lord. Not just a guy who's going to get you into heaven. But as one who wants to know you and love you and can direct your life, if you lack peace, if you experience anxiety, if you can't trust, if you feel hurt, entrust yourself to Jesus. He will give you what you need. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be perfect. Lord knows mine isn't. But it will set you on a path to knowing that the God of the universe is with you and for you in every moment of every day. What a wonderful gift. If that's an example of what the remnant means, man, I want more of that. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You know, someone um, said to me recently, uh, who is a Christian? And the answer was, just somebody who ends up being one. Just somebody who ends up being one. Because there's a lot of people who grew up going to church, whose family was a, you know, dad was a deacon or something, but in the end, they just sharded their own path. And it wasn't a willful rejection of God. Oh, I don't like you. It was just a slow drift away. I've, I am better at following and, and guiding my life than anyone else. But a Christian is just someone who ends up being one. Now, I know there's a whole lot more to it than that. But it's this idea of persevering, of, of asking God and wrestling with God. Are there issues? Do you have concerns? Do you have objections? Are you frustrated? And taking those concerns to the Lord and asking him, to answer your objections and your concerns and your questions. and Because he can handle it. The Psalms are filled with, with David shaking his fist and saying, God, how could you do this, essentially? He can handle it. It's okay to do it, but go to him. Who is a Christian? Just somebody who ends up being one. So what happens when you give your life to Jesus? What does this do? See, the features of, of the remnant concept are actually embedded into Jesus himself. Jesus essentially is the embodiment of Israel. Jesus essentially is the faithful servant when Israel was not. Unlike the remnant of the restoration period, Jesus committed no sin. Jesus alone could undergo the judgment of God and survive. You see, on the cross, Jesus endured the exile from the Father, and on the third day, he enjoyed the restoration at the beginning of a new age, at the nucleus of the people of God in jesus the theological problem that we talked about that tension between grace and justice is resolved and see jesus he survives the judgment he becomes the focus of the hope for the continued presence of the people in a new kingdom a new israel jesus is the founder of the new israel and he summons the little flock to be with him that will receive the kingdom jesus appoints judges over the 12 tribes of israel in the new age Other sheep will join in this Jewish fold, John says in John 10. The church is viewed as the Israel of this new age. The 12 tribes, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people are found in Jesus Christ as we are connected into him. So part of being, part of this remnant is being in Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to try to get real practical here. I'm going to talk to you about two different aspects of how remnant can apply to your life. First in postures, second in practices. Postures and practices. What is posture? Everyone sit up straight. Have good posture, sit up straight. Your mom used to say that to you, right? When we're sitting up straight or we're standing up straight, it's the way we have our shoulders or back, we're able to breathe deeply, we have our head up, and this is the way that we approach life. If you approach life like this, right, this is not the right approach to life, right? You wanna stand tall, and, and 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 so, uh, spiritually speaking, we want to have a posture that represents who we are in Christ. So, so what's your posture? If you're a Roman citizen seeking to follow Jesus in your culture, what's your posture? Is it fear? Is it anger? Is it bitterness? Is it ah, oh, like well, this culture is bad? No, it's not, because we know what happened in the Church of Rome. The posture of the church in Rome was vibrant. They had a spirit of power. They had a spirit of faith, right? We think about this. The, the culture was a mess. Were they, did they just decide, well, let's just keep this thing to ourselves and try to protect everybody here from the bad world? No. They didn't also assimilate into the culture either. They didn't just say, hey, whatever the culture has to offer, this is what's good for me. They had a posture of engagement, a posture of humility, a posture of faith. And think about what, what, if you want to look at the ideas that Paul is talking to us about over and over again in the, in the Gospel of Romans, is to live by faith, that we can believe that God is going to do something in and through his church in this age and in the age to come. So we have a posture and a spirit of power, not to get more power, but to release the power that we've been given to serve those who are less fortunate, those who are in need, the prison, prisoners, the orphans, the widows, and the strangers. Those who are in our community that need a voice. That's our posture, it's to come to the world. We don't live in despair or in discouragement because we know that Jesus is on the throne, that He's present with us right now. So He has the power to comfort and to care. That's a posture. Another posture could be compassion. Do you have compassion on the world? God has given us grace and He's given us mercy. So that means what are we supposed to do? Extend that grace. Extend that mercy to the world around us. We're not the judge. God is. So we can freely serve people, whether they're following Jesus or not. Whether they want what we have in Jesus or not, we can love and care for our neighbor. Who are the people in your life that you work with, that live in your community, that need compassion? They need encouragement. They need to be loved. What is your posture toward them? Ah, they're getting what they deserve. (laughs) Or... Man, I know they're struggling. This person is wounded and hurt, and so I need to re- to enter into their life with love. You can't save anybody, but you can extend compassion. All right, so those are postures. What about practices? by practices I mean those spiritual disciplines that we need to engage to live by faith do we need to live in order to have the posture we've got to have the practice right because when you stand up tall you're using muscles in your body right if you don't have any muscles if you're just if, if you're if you're just a skeleton like you're totally rigid right those muscles allow you to, and the ligaments allow you to flex and move and the way we develop those muscles is by exercising them by functioning in this, and so in the same way that we grow spiritually, it's through practices. We don't earn our salvation and get right with God by praying. God has made us right with himself through Jesus. But because of that, then we need to pray. We need to engage. This is one that we're talking about all year long at Woodland. It's not the first time we've talked about it. It won't be the last. But we're wanting to put a special focus on it. How are you growing in your prayer life? Do you know how to pray? If you don't, hey, there's a class on Sunday mornings at 9.15, you should come. Come and engage in prayer with us. One of the the people that came to class, I won't name this person's name, said, that I want to be more comfortable praying out loud. You know how you do it? You pray out loud. and That was such a great thing for this person to say, I want to grow in this area. I want to be confident and comfortable in, in voicing my prayer out loud so that others can be encouraged. Maybe you don't know how to do that. Maybe you don't know where you should begin. The best way to learn how to pray is simply to start praying. One of the things I talk about a lot is having extraordinary prayer life, right? So what's your ordinary prayer posture? How often do you pray? For whom do you pray? That's your ordinary prayer life. Here's what I'm challenging you to do this week. Add something extra. Then you've got an extraordinary prayer life now, and when that becomes ordinary, Then add something extra so that we would be a praying people. We're listening to God. We're growing in the knowledge of his will. We're bearing fruit in every good work in prayer. Turn off your phone. Turn off the TV. Don't worry about the news. Just sit and listen to God in prayer. That's a practice that you can develop that will change your posture toward the world. Another one I wanted to encourage you to do is preaching. Preaching. Now, when you hear preaching, you think Standing in a pulpit preaching. Because lots of people call me the preacher. Hey, there's the preacher. You're a preacher. Because what you talk about and what you voice reveals what you value. And you have a voice. You have a strong voice with the people that you encounter. What are you talking about? Are you talking about grace? Are you talking about forgiveness? Are you talking about justice? Are you talking about love? About how to, how to support and encourage and to pray for our leaders and our community? Are you talking about what Jesus is doing in your life with the people who are around you? And I'm not talking about every single time you see the guy at the water cooler I go, Do you want to know what Jesus did in my life back when I was working the last hour? But when God is working on you and in you, you have these moments that people, God will put people in your path. And discern and say, Lord, what is it that I can say that would be an encouragement? And part of it is not saying anything. It's asking, how's it going for real? Like, how are you really doing right now? Can I encourage you? Hey, you know, I'm learning how to pray. I'm trying to grow in prayer. And I was wondering if it'd be okay for me to pray for you. Is there something specific that I could pray for for you? Oh, there is? Okay. Could I pray for you right now? Would that be okay? Okay. And do it. You'd be surprised at how many people will say yes. I've only had a handful of people say no. It's awesome. You can do it. But that's that proclamation of your life and of your faith that makes a difference in the world. So there's this uh, this guy named John Huss. And uh, he was born in 1369. So right? if we know our church history, we know that's about 100 to 200 years before the Reformation. But he lived uh, in, the, in the Czech Republic, and uh, he was a professor of philosophy and a rector of the university in Prague. So if you're, if you're puffing up your chest about how old your school is, it's probably not as old as his was. But he was a professor and a, ph- a philosopher and he, and he preached and he became a center for the rallying cry for the Reformation in the Czech Republic before Martin Luther and John Calvin were even born. And he got support from, from the students, from the common people. And he, and he led this protest against the Roman Catholic Church and the hierarchy because they were uh, suppressing faith and freedom. It was just a ritual for them at that time. But guess what happened to him? He was accused of heresy, and he underwent a long trial at the, the Council of Constance. And on July 6, 1415, he was burned at the stake. For things that we do freely every single day and we take for granted, he died. But guess what happened? A movement began, a movement called uh, the Moravians. They they went to a certain area in their community and they began to pray. And they began to say, we want to serve God faithfully. We want to to love him. According to Gregory the Patriarch, considered the father of the Unitas Fratrum, which, uh, which means the Holy Brotherhood, Made that a Christian was not a, um, what made a Christian was not a doctrine or what he or she believed, but that a person lived his or her life according to the teachings of Jesus Christ. He described the first Moravians as people who have decided once and for all to be guided only by the gospel and example of our Lord Jesus Christ and his holy apostles in gentleness, humility, patience, and love for our enemies." think about that if that marked the church today that we would be guided by the gospel and example of Jesus in gentleness in humility in patience and love for our enemies we find it hard to love our own friends to love our own family members and yet the Moravians Loved their enemies just as Jesus had commanded. They started a prayer meeting at a church that lasted for 100 years. And the amazing thing about the Moravians is that they didn't just get together in their place. Because of the persecution, they were spread all over the world. Their vision was to bring the good news of the gospel all over the world. From a guy who was burned at the stake to a small community of people who said, we want to live as Jesus would have us to live. So here's the question. Do we have enough people in here to lead a movement based on historical events in the Christian faith? Are there enough people in this room right now that could, God could use to bring a movement? Yes or no? Who says yes? Say yes, somebody. Yeah. M- much less people, many less people, whatever the right vocab is, that God has used to start a movement because they said, we want to live for Jesus. So what's the way that you can live for Jesus this week? What's the posture or the practice that you can have to live as God's remnant today? It doesn't do you any good if you walk out of here and you think, oh, that's a nice story about John Hus getting burned at the stake. I didn't know that. I learned something. You've got to now say, what am I going to do? God's not going to love you less if you don't obey him. But you're not going to experience the joy of seeing how you might be used to reach your coworker for the sake of Jesus. That you might bring justice to our city by caring for someone who's in need. Or by experiencing forgiveness in your own heart for someone who has hurt you. So what's the thing that God is asking you to do today? Write it down. Write it down in your Bible on a note and come back next week when we study Romans, the end of Romans 11, and ask yourself, did I do what God told me to do? I'm not telling you to do anything except for to do what God told you. Because only he knows, but you know. So do it and celebrate as a remnant. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, Maturing God's People to Serve a Hurting World. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.